Hello there. Welcome to Greenfluence, the podcast that brings you the latest in sustainability, responsible investing, and climate change. I'm Sarah, your podcast editor, and it's fantastic to be with you here again to bring you episode five of season two. So keen to bring you this episode. We have a new host joining us, Shree, our Greenfluence Publications and Partnerships lead. Shree is an amazing person who is passionate about sustainability, and it's awesome to have her hosting the podcast for the first time. Our guest for this episode is Kaya Taylor, who is very involved and experienced in clean tech, renewable energy, and fostering communities. Such a privilege to have her share insights into her career path, the future of energy, and advice on how we can all make a positive difference. I think you'll really appreciate the optimism she has for the future. Here's episode five of season two with Kaya Taylor. Hi everyone, I'm Shree, your Publications and Partnerships Lead. I currently work as a lawyer at a generalist firm and I'm really excited to have um, Kaya here with us today on the pod. Hi Kaya, how are you doing? Well, thanks. How are you? Good. How did you find the um, the sun today? It was truly wonderful. I um I am a recent arrival into Sydney and it has not been kind weather since we arrived. So I have taken full advantage today and uh, ran into the ocean on two occasions in between meetings. So I feel very, very lucky. It's a beautiful day. That's really good to hear. I think, you know, as as the storm passes, hopefully you'll be able to enjoy more sunny days. I hope so. I didn't trade Melbourne weather in for more Melbourne weather by moving mm. to Sydney. So. Hopefully soon. Hopefully soon. Yeah, definitely. All right, um, Kai, we've we've got a lot to talk about, but uh, mm-hmm. I thought we'd start off um, in the beginning of your journey. Um, you initially started off doing your undergrad in business and advertising, yet you chose to complete your masters in globalization. Mm-hmm. Can you share with us what sparked that interest in doing that masters in globalization? So I guess I had a little, a slightly, I guess, unconventional pathway in. And when people say unconventional, they often mean that they started in one degree and changed. But for me, unconventional meant that I actually left high school um, in year 10. And I ended up completing TAFE studies um, to, to substitute my high school certificate. And I got a job around... Uh, you know, I had done lots of work experience, but I got a job when I was 18 to work in a really big North American corporation. And when I did that, it was, it was really important that I was able to show that I had a, a bachelor degree. It was something that I think, um, you know, 11 years ago was, was much more important than it is now. And I think it's something that is really, really important in North America. So I went and did this undergrad and it was kind of like a trade. It was something that I needed to just be able to show that I could, um, you know, operate at the level that I was working at. And then fast forward a few years, I had done the undergrad and I really wanted to do something that I guess kind of 
dug a little bit more into the things I was interested in. And for me, that was always how the world works. It was global politics. It was understanding international institutions. It was understanding the complexities of international law. Um, it was understanding these ideas around development and war and resolution. And and there, and there were things I was just really, really, really interested in. And um, at the time, I wanted to kind of spend more time thinking and, and exploring it. And so um, I went for a Masters of Globalization because it was actually, the, in my view at the time, it was the best way to be able to take a very cross-disciplined approach. I think a lot of degrees encourage you to kind of um, stay in a field or stay in a kind of a, a, a theory or a thought process, so to speak. Um, and, you know, they say like you've got electives, you can kind of, you know, do do different things, but it's kind of the path is pretty well defined. And at this point in time, the Masters of Globalization at ANU was really broad. Um, I could jump between, I think I jumped between four different colleges um, there was social science college, the security college, um, international, you know, the law college, and I, there was one other one. And, and it was just this amazing way of being able to understand parts of how the world works. Obviously, no one understands the full the full part of it, um, but it, it helped me to understand more than just theory. There was there was um, different thoughts, different ideas, and I really really enjoyed being able to understand uh, development, conflict policy through the lens of different schools and not just through the lens of one, say, for example, international relations in general. Um, so that was that. That was the that was the pathway, I guess, at the very beginning that took me there. That's so interesting. I think a lot of us can relate to that non-conventional path that um, you, you take initially to get you to a, a place in your career that you never really expected to to go and I think it's so important to realize that you don't necessarily need to um, take you know a certain road to get to you know B you can take you know X Y and still get to A and it's it's interesting to you know reflect on journeys like this and I'm really glad to be sharing that um, with you today Um, and Talking about globalization and mm-hmm. um, your journey in in doing your masters, I think something that's really important um, is also the concept of community. When you mm-hmm. when you look at the global economy, the global um, world, community is important. Um, and I think you put um, something that really close to my heart, really beautifully in your article, um, joining EVP as the head of platform and community. You said, community thrives when it's woven into everything we do, grounded in authenticity and connection. And I think that was so uh, like on point. Um, And when I think of community, I think of you know, ties I've had with my South Asian culture coming from a Nepali background, the culture, food, language, music might seem like external things, but they all add to a bigger picture of community connection, of understanding universal values of care, compassion, respect and trust. And um, and from your experience growing up in a proud Waramungu family in Alice Springs. How has that influenced your understanding of community? 
I guess I consider myself really, really lucky spending the first decade or so of my life growing up in Alice Springs, um, you know, not just growing up in Alice Springs, but also being part of a, a very, very proud Wurrumungu family. Um, for those who aren't familiar, Wurrumungu um, is, you know, the the, the uh, Aboriginal Indigenous tribe that lives um, just outside of Tennant Creek. And um, my family you know, is is very proud in its heritage. We have, you know, a number of elders within the within the family. Um and I guess what this meant for me is that it it was less early on a, a lesson in community, even though um you know indigenous communities are, are very, very, very strong. Um for me it was more so a lesson in belonging. And I think that belonging is a is a core element of community um the sense that you have the feeling that you create is what I think helps communities exist it's what helps them helps them thrive whether or not your members feel they belong and what it taught me I think early on was really this understanding of I guess the danger if I flip it for a moment of um of community and of belonging when you can see that there is a really clear division between us and them. And um, to digress really quickly, um, one of the things I loved in in my master's was I ended up taking a really, I guess, core focus on understanding nationalism. And I did that through the lens of, of conflict and development. But when you when you distill the kind of the elements of, of what creates a sense of nationalism, it is really this idea in a way of what creates um, identity and belonging to a certain group, to a certain community. And a core element of it in a really negative sense is the clear delineation between us and them, right? It's, it's being able to define a, an external enemy, so to speak. And that becomes really tricky when you think about communities that may not have that type of, um, you know, it might not be a state versus state. It might not be, you know, conflict or anything like that related. But when you think about people belonging in one and, and then being able to draw this clear line of who doesn't belong. And so for me, the lesson growing up in, in Alice Springs was actually observing the fact that, you know, I was very lucky. I never experienced racism um, I consider myself inc- incredibly, incredibly privileged in that regard. Um, but I was, I observed it a lot. You know, I grew up in an Indigenous community, which meant that I observed constantly how my brothers, my cousins, my uncles, my aunties, my grandparents were treated, um, you know, when they kind of left their community and went to a, another community. So for me, the biggest lesson, lesson was, I guess, understanding that they can actually like what what can be an amazing tool for good can also be a really really it can also be a, quite a dangerous tool when you start to think about um you know this us and them concept and i think at the at the at the you know at the end of the day what it what it really gave me was a, a really deep sense of always wanting to understand the other side it's been this thing that's kind of been instilled in me from a very young age which is if if we are a part of one community and there's a collective thought and there's collective kind of thinking. I'm always really interested to understand what, what's the other side? What's the difference? What, what, what's happening on the people on the other side of the line? Because I think that's where you start to really understand the bigger picture. And so I think that was the honestly one of the things that growing up in that setting really gave me was this really clear sense of the other 
and I guess of people who um, might not be, like I said, traditionally kind of considered as a part of the yeah. community that you're in. Yeah, it, it's it's definitely such an important concept to wrap your head around and the way you've sort of talked about your experiences growing up, being exposed to um, different situations, the problems that have arise because of um, the views of community, being able to understand that it's not always a one-sided perspective. You have to look at, you know, that coin two-sided. And, um, yeah, I think that's it's really important to, to go forward to explore. Um, and I think community has been a, this understanding of community has been a big part of um, your your understanding and your the way you approach your role at EVP. Do you think? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, like I said, I think that I've always probably been exposed um, to strong communities throughout my life. I think the big shift for me was. Um, realizing that a lot of my roles over the last um, bit or a decade actually had a pretty strong community focus before community was even a buzzword or a kind of like a, a buzz role, so to speak. Um, so yeah, very much so coming into EVP, it's a core element, you know, it's in my title, it's in my responsibility, um, creating and fostering community amongst the founders that we invest in, uh, our investors themselves, and then also the broader kind of ecosystem that supports us is is a is is a key element of of my mandate for sure. Amazing. Um, I I never really thought of the role of um, uh, platform and community as something that would look so deeply into the concept of community. Um, because I mean, when I think of EVP, I think of you know uh, the, their years of formation, the funds they've closed um, with this pol- with this portfolio of thirty five companies raising one point two billion in, in in rounds. So I, I think of it from a from a commercial perspective. But when you've shared your understanding of the role and the way you've approached it, I think there's so much more to an organization than just looking at revenue and profits community at its core for a lot of businesses these days is a really powerful um is a really powerful way to keep people engaged you know we talked briefly just before about belonging building a sense of community increases people's sense that they belong to something and if you belong to something and you feel um you know like you can kind of wear a badge or something that you're a part of you feel you know you're more likely to to feel a sense of um you know of pride about it of of happiness of commitment you you can evoke really strong emotions and I think that makes um you know it can help make the path um you know of of founders you know not necessarily easier, but just more supported when they feel like there are other people that they can kind of lean on and speak to. So there are definitely, you know, venture capital firms are, you know, financial businesses, you know, we raise money from investors and we invest money, you know, into companies and they go on to, you know, raise more money as you've, as you've outlined. But um, at the end of the day, I think creating a, a solid ground for them to kind of come back to and feel that they belong to is, is a really important part of helping them thrive. You've, 
added a lot of good points to it. And, uh, and, and just touching on your last note of being able to thrive in an organisation, you need to understand this concept of community. And I think um, as, as your experience of being both a fellow and a coach at Starmate, at Startmate, um, as uh, you've, you've gotten that experience of, um, of adding that concept of community um, in that perspective as well as, as your um, experience as coach. To give some people tuning in, um, can you walk us through your experience with Startmate? Yeah, for sure. So last year, I think it was 2021, um, I was working in a startup. Um, I was chief customer officer at UPower and I was two years into that. It had been an incredible journey, um, but I felt a deep sense of absence in terms of community. I think often people underestimate that when you join an early stage startup, there is there's a great sense of um I don't want to use the word loneliness but you are doing a lot of things a lot of really hard things by yourself often for the first time yeah and Mm -hmm. the very nature of an early stage startup means that you are probably the only person in your function which means you might not have you know people to bounce ideas off so to speak and having a, a network a community of like-minded people around you is really important. And I felt that was really missing for me. I had a community of, of, of deep energy professionals, um, but I didn't necessarily have a community of people who understood startups. So um, uh, early last year, I joined the fellowship, the women's fellowship that Startmate runs. It's an incredible program. Um, it takes about 100 women twice a year through a uh, around an eight-week program where there is content and, and they, they, you know, there is a lot of information for people who haven't worked in startups before. For me, it was less about the content. It was more about the connections. So you get you get um, connected to a great, uh, to a mentor. So for me, I was really, really lucky. I was connected to Matt Allen, who was a very prominent um, investor, operator. Um, he runs Tractor Ventures. He just launched another um, investing syndicate today. So he was an incredible person to have in that journey. Um, and and you, you get connected to all these amazing people who understand what you're going through, yeah. right? And so what Startmate have done really, really well is that they've created this huge community where people can can tap into that. And it's, you know, they say it's forever and in the program you're kind of like, yeah, maybe like that, that seems like a stretch. But honestly, it's over, you know, it's nearly 12 months on since when I did it and I... I still have, you know, friendships with people I've made in that, that, you know, I, I can't see ending anytime soon. So it was, it was really, really valuable as a fellow. And then I came back and I really wanted to give back to, to Startmate everything they gave to me. So I, um, I joined as a student coach in the cohort straight after that. And then I came back in and did um, coaching in the women's fellowship um, at the end of last year, which was also really rewarding. So it's this, um, bit of a cycle of life, so to speak. You kind of enter as a fellow or you enter as a, a founder, whichever, and you end up kind of giving back in different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, but Startmate is an incredible organization for the community that they build within the startup ecosystem. That's that's incredible, the experience you've had and um, the journey you've had um, with, with Startmate as a fellow and then going from there, trying to give back to the community by um, by being a coach on that. I, I, I really found it, interesting just doing my research on it and 
um, getting to understand how they just started out with 10k in a micro fund and then you know they just started on this journey to build a community I've, I found that really incredible like the the journey they began with and what they have right now um I think it's a great it's, yeah it's a remarkable it's a remarkable organization and I think um you know they obviously are an accelerator at, at its core so there's obviously to your point, you know, they started as a small fund and they've now, you know, raised some money and, 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 you know, invest through their, their accelerator. But, you know, if you think about even just from the women's fellowship in, in less than two years, they've taken 500 women through a program where, you know, the, I think the numbers were like 65% of them or something now work in startups. And if you think about the type of, you know, momentum that creates in the ecosystem, it's, it's quite phenomenal. So yeah, they're a brilliant organization. That's really like powerful in itself because I think um, you, you probably had that experience of being a, a woman's coach, and I think from that I can say from my perspective, um, a woman in in law is hard enough as it is. Um, a, a woman in tech, um, a woman in say in in the startup industry would just, be just being a woman in general. Yeah, like just. <laughs> Just so challenging. The, the amount of challenges we face just entering, um, you know, the, any industry I think is is a challenging um, aspect of our lives and it's important that we have these organisations to, to provide that support for us. I think another, another interesting way to look at it, right, is that like um, often... You know, often people are able to move up through their career. You know, often it's it's through through performance, but a lot of the time it's about who you know, right? And the hard thing is, I think for a lot of women is that when there's a when there is a you know an absence of female um, leadership or senior roles or women in certain industries, it's actually harder for women to be able to be connected in a way that supports their career. You know, it's 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 hard to kind of build that network you can't kind of go you know well who did I go to university with and who can I kind of you know reach out to to get advice um and if you didn't go to a big consulting firm you haven't had that experience either so in a way it kind of it creates this you know this thing this this amazing kind of pot of gold that you can tap into where you know everyone I've not met anyone in the startmate community who doesn't answer a message and so if you need advice in your career or if you want to be able to understand what it's like to work in an organization or a type of role or whichever is this kind of mini curated university or, or or club or network or whatever you want to call it where you can get that access to people to be able to get you know, some help. It doesn't mean that you're going to get, you know, land a job, but it means that you're going to be able to potentially just kind of make some deeper connections or um, get some greater insights onto the, you know, into the path that, you know, that might be ahead of you. So it's it's really valuable in that regard as well. Yeah, definitely, Kaya. Um, I, I think that's really important for um, our listeners also to, to gain that experience and I think if you're interested in getting involved or um, interested in learning about it, um, Kai is more than happy to answer your questions so feel free to reach out. Just moving gears um, a uh-huh. bit more, um, I, was, I was wondering if we could touch on clean tech. Um, mm-hmm. and your your journey um, in, in in that area. So we got connected when I was doing the clean tech event for early work, right? And we were talking about clean tech in, I think I was talking with Nick from CFC. 
that's when we first got connected, right? Yeah. Um, so with this event, um, we went into understanding some of the um, stuff that clean tech involves. And this umbrella term now broadly encapsulates um, a broad range of areas, including energy generation, storage, retailing, waste management, market innovation, ag tech, carbon tracking, and alternative proteins. There's much more than that, but I think that would be a bit of a summary. With all this innovation out there, um, what what do you think are the barriers that some of these technologies face from entering the market? That's a really, really broad question, um, and I can't probably go through all the barriers. I would yeah. say that, um, like I shared um, at the event, clean tech is a huge umbrella term. It now encompasses, I think, um, more than just energy technology, which I think going back a few years, um, clean tech was really synonymous with just energy innovation. And now, um, you know, it includes... it's it's a lot broader it also I think includes a lot of climate related initiatives which is really exciting and it should um but you know the reality is it was never probably simple because energy is really complex it's also really broad there are you know a myriad of ways in which you can generate energy and there are a number of ways in which you can store and there are a number of different elements that you know are involved in terms of getting energy to households and businesses and um and, and you know, across the grid as needed. So I think in terms of tech um, barriers, I think, um, you know, if we focus just on the energy side and I, and I won't touch, you know, on ag tech or, or you know, the alternative, alternative proteins, but I think a lot of, um, you know, innovation in Australia needs funding, right? Innovation anywhere needs funding. And I think that right now there are a number of government initiatives that help to facilitate early stage innovation um, and that really helps to kind of, you know, get, uh, you know, prototypes, MVPs, pilots kind of moving. But then beyond that, you need to be able to kind of look more broader for investment. And I think that, um, you know, there's there's probably, there's definitely a stronger hesitation to invest in, in hardware. And I think there's probably a stronger hesitation to invest in, in heavily regulated markets. And unfortunately, or fortunately, depending, um, you know, energy consists of both those things. It's it's heavily hardware focused in terms of generation um, and storage. And then it's also a fairly regulated market. And, you know, it it changes um, in different markets across the world. So just, I guess, our way of thinking about you know, technology. I think often investors look at software, um, and it's a very clear story and playbook that we've seen. You know, played out thousands of times, millions of times. Hardware is a different beast, and I think that risk appetite with hardware in the clean tech space is probably one of the biggest barriers in terms of yeah. investment, which is required yeah. to be able to you know accelerate innovation. So I think. Right. Yeah, I think that's probably one of our our, our key barriers that we as as an industry have to kind of explore at the moment. And with elections coming up, um, you know, talking about coal and fossil fuels and uh, I was just reflecting on this this concept of how Australia has been a large exporter of fossil fuels for so many years and now with current 
fossil fuel prices rising and our, our shift towards renewable energy will be essential in the growth of our com- economy. Where do you think Australia is heading in terms of building that national presence for renewable energy? I think that it is overwhelmingly positive when we think about where Australia is heading. I think about the changes, you know, something I often reflect with some of my my energy colleagues, right, is like, um, you know, the last election or even just two, two or so years ago, right, you would never, ever see energy in mainstream media. It just was never a thing. It was a thing, you know, one of the programs I ran at Arena, which I absolutely loved, was this, was, was something called Demand Response. Um, and it was this initiative where, um, to get geeky for one second, um, this idea that sometimes when the grid is under um, a lot of pressure and there's a forecast from the market operator that we need a certain amount of energy and for whatever reason the the generation the generators can't meet that demand there's a supply issue and so one of the things they look to do is try and create more um i guess what they call capacity on the market by asking certain energy users to reduce their their energy use right and so this was this really big big initiative because it meant that if you could prove this you could actually try and um you know stop uh, I guess, you know, public money investment into infrastructure that actually just wasn't needed to kind of support more coal generation that we didn't need. So it was this big thing. I think it was covered in the media once um, and it was like a four-year program, right? Well, it ended up being about four years. The The reality is, is that now renewable energy is in the media all the time. People's interest and understanding and education has evolved a lot since the last election. Do I think that this is going to be a critical piece of the election? Probably not in terms of, you know, how people really, really do vote. I think, unfortunately, we do live in in a world where people want to vote in terms of, you know, their independent needs, right? At the end of the day, you want to make sure that you're able to put food on the dinner table, you're able to buy a house you're able to kind of fulfill your sort of like, you know, Maslow hierarchy of needs. A lot of people have always seen climate stuff as being secondary. I think that is shifting. I think there's a large, large, large majority that that feels very differently about that now. But to answer your question directly, where is Australia going in this? I think that um, Australia's, you know, national uh, energy psyche will be renewable, right? We are at the point where, you know, even the biggest retailers like Origin are turning out and saying, we're closing down our coal plants early, we're replacing them with a big battery, we know the future is renewable. And I think the minute you start seeing that from some of the biggest kind of, you know, the biggest bodies in a space, I think that's a huge market signal. I think in terms of where is Australia's role in energy globally, I think it's an interesting, it's going to be an interesting I think somewhat ideological um, debate that we're going to to kind of see play out over the next few years. I think that um, one thing I've always questioned is that there's a lot of conversation about Australia wanting to be this global renewable energy superpower. And I think we have all the resources to be that. Um, One thing I've always been curious about, though, is whether or not uh, Australians actually, uh, you know, whether or not the psyche actually wants that, whether or not as a culture, as a kind of national community, the majority of people actually want that kind of status. And I think, um, I think Australians are actually a lot more conservative than that usually. So I think we have all the resources in the world to be 
a global superpower. I hope we are in the energy space, especially um, especially with export. And there's so much exciting innovation going on with hydrogen and, and hydrogen will be one of will be one of the best ways, um, you know, not the only way, but a good way to export renewable energy that we generate in Australia. So I think it is so exciting. And I love seeing energy in the media each week because I think that means that people really want to be more informed and people really, really understand that there is an overwhelmingly positive uh, opportunity very, very, very close by in terms of Australia's, um, you know, just national kind of, um, you know, the status quo for us in terms of energy use will be renewable. Yeah, definitely. Like you said, um, it's it's a changing perspective towards renewable energy and um, understanding the prioritisation of that to our economy. And yes, uh, perspectives are shifting and I think it, it might take some time. Um, but it's it's good, I suppose, um, to see people changing their perspective um, in hopes that, you know, in future elections, this might be uh, a core topic of of concern. I think it is a core topic. Don't get me wrong. I definitely think it's a core topic. I I don't know how many people will be putting that as their top priority in terms of voting. I think right. we like to yeah. think that everyone is like us in terms mm-hmm. of, you know, enlightened, so to speak, you know, um, near city dwellers. Um, I think there's a lot of regional Australia that also feels this acutely because they see the effects of climate change regularly. But I think there are many parts of regional Australia that um, just don't, it's just, it's just not in the dialogue yet. So I think we have to remember Australia is a very big country. But I do think it is one of the core topics. On this note of um, renewable energy, I thought it'd be good to touch on your experience of uh, of um, being a podcast host um, or rewired by Arena, which is the Australian Renewable Energy Agency. Um, and you've previously worked with Arena as Deputy Director of Industry Engagement, where you led um, share, where you led knowledge sharing and industry engagement efforts across a portfolio of nearly a hundred distributed energy resource projects. From this experience of interviewing multiple innovators, how has your perspective on renewable energy changed? In truth, it hasn't changed because the reality is is that when you work somewhere like Arena, you are constantly exposed to the most optimistic side of the industry. You are constantly exposed to innovation. Um, you know, and I started working at Arena, um, right, I think it was right at the beginning of 2018. Um, and, um, you know, the so much has changed so much has happened um you know sure it's an innovation agency so some things fail but the majority of 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 nearly everything succeed the people running these kind of innovation projects are generally fairly conservative people um and they take calculated risk and and it pays off and so you know I've, i was you know for the last four or five years i've been constantly exposed to the overwhelmingly optimistic side of renewable energy and of innovation and of opportunity. So it hasn't changed. It has absolutely only cemented 
you know, I, you know, since left um, Arena, I worked in a clean tech startup and then came back and hosted the Arena podcast. And throughout this time, you, you feel, you feel very hopeful. You, you get to hear, you know, so much innovation and it's, and it's challenging because you kind of can't check the Arena website every day. Well, I mean, you could and refresh it in terms of news announcements and try and figure out like where the, you know, the, the next most exciting project is. But when you, when you're around this, you just, you're constantly inspired and, you know, I can remember um, a couple of years ago asked, being asked to kind of do a talk about, you know, the state of renewable energy in Australia and I shared how optimistic I was and, um, you know, people who haven't worked in that space were um, pretty dismissive of that view. They kind of thought that I was, um, you know, glossing over things and, and being too optimistic and being, you know, cherry picking. And, and it was quite a humiliating experience kind of being on a panel and being, um, you know, thrown yeah. under the bus like that. But <laughs> I, I maintain, I maintain complete and utter optimism. And I think if anyone needs a reminder of how exciting the energy transition is, you know, listen to the podcast. Um, I'm definitely not that exciting, but the people who I speak to are, and, you know, check out the Arena website, check out other kind of clean tech innovation, um, you know, websites and see the stuff they're funding and then go and follow that. You know, one of the coolest things is to look at a project from six years ago and see where it is now because, you know, the majority of them go on to, you know, to kind of to be the status quo. Um, and I think that's that's wildly reassuring. I always honestly admire your optimism. That's so good to hear the fact that um, you you've just continued to be optimistic um and in this day and age where you know you're you're hit with this reality of you need to think about the commercialization of everything and that's important and I, I think that is important but that shouldn't affect um well it, it may but it shouldn't pull us down from our optimism too much I think it's it's really important too the commercial when you see that the commercial reality supports it you know my 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 optimism isn't optimism for the sake of it and I should caveat you know there is obviously a hell of a lot we have to do in order to actually you know reduce global warming um you know get to a world in which we actually now you know we, we actually understand how to you know respond and adapt to the effects of climate change because they are real and I don't think you know, I'm not optimistic in the fact that we've solved that by any means. What I'm optimistic in is that actually there are a number of opportunities that are already proven, they're out there, you know, they're doing great things. They just don't always get the attention. So the optimism comes from seeing innovation constantly show that there is a very viable, commercially viable other way of doing things, which means that it is a matter of time until those things become status quo. Um, I definitely don't think we've solved the bigger kind of climate picture by any means. So I don't know. It's it's optimism, but it's it's not um, uh, completely naive optimism, so to speak. Right. It's not blind optimism. It's not blind yeah. optimism, exactly. Right. Exactly. Mm. And for those of you listening, I, I'd really encourage you to check Arena out. Um, check the pod. Um, Kaya is amazing um, and there's so many amazing innovation out there that um, is on the pod. So I'd really encourage you to check that out. To conclude, what advice would you give to young professionals who are interested in VC, clean tech or the renewable space? 
Well, at the moment, they're fairly different spaces. So let me break them out a little bit. Um, if you're interested in, in clean tech and renewable, um, renewable energy, I think um, there are many different roles that are needed in those industries. I think for a long time, um, the kind of traditional mentality has been, you know, you have to kind of be an engineer or you have to be, you know, the commercial person or you have to be the policy person. And I think that's meant that for the most part, that's kind of um, pigeonholed the types of um, people that, you know, that it, that it kind of hires in and, and the pathways in and, and the kind of skills that people kind of bring in. And I think we're going through this transition now where there's startups, um, there's like, you know, really huge corporations and they need all these skills, right? They need designers, they need product people, they need, um, you know, software engineers and, you know, hardware engineers, they need, um, you know, people and culture managers, they need lawyers, they need, you know, they need everything. Um, they need people who understand people. Um, and so I think really, really explore um, how kind of like regardless of what you've studied or kind of like what your, you know, what your profession, so to speak, is, I think I would encourage you to, to kind of find pathways in. Um, as we've talked about before, you know, there are market bodies, there are regulatory bodies that have a have a really big um, legal aspect. If you study law, that could be interesting for you. Um, you know, look for internships at, you know, the at retailers, look at internships at startups um, and, you know, universities as well. There's a lot of work that goes in on academia. And I would say just ask people questions, have coffee with people. It is a highly complex space the best way that I found to understand it is to talk to people. I swear when I first, you know, joined arena, I had, you know, grown up in, in, on mine sites and in energy generation projects, but the, the way I kind of, um, you know, got, uh, educated fairly quickly was through talking to people. Um, and the other piece of advice in that I'd give is then also make sure that you're doing something useful with what you learn, right? That's one of the best ways to kind of embed it. If you want to understand how energy retailing works, talk to people and then write it down or play it back to someone because it really kind of helps embed the process. Um, on the VC side, I think it's, it's a really interesting space. It's definitely very um, hot at the moment. People are very, you know, kind of the new buzz, buzz, buzz word, buzz role, so to speak. Um, I think that um, one thing, again, I'd keep in mind is that, you know, there's the investment side to VC. And if you've got a background in, in, in commerce or finance, you know, there's the investing side. There's also the operational side and there's the community side and there's the, um, you know, the people side. You know, I work with a fantastic head of talent, right, whose background is recruitment. and He's now the head of talent at a VC. I work with an incredible, um, you know, finance and business operations manager whose background is an accountant. You know, my background is 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 varied, but you know, it was marketing at its core. So, I guess I'm just explaining that in VC, it's no longer just investing. There are a myriad of other roles that you can get into. But again, the same advice applies: ask people questions, reach out for coffees, try and connect, build a network. Um, I think that's one of the best ways that, in any point of your career, that's how you can kind of help navigate it. That's really good to hear. I think. As as someone in law and um, talking to people about careers in sustainability, I have sort of understood now that there's so many different ways you can contribute to the field, um, and it, it's good to to hear that 
there's going to be more and more opportunities out there um, as an industry is gross. So definitely keep researching for those listening and um, keep um, doing your research because I'm sure you'll find um, the answers you're looking for or maybe you'll, you know, begin your first chat with someone and start that conversation. Research, yeah. but ask for chats, you know, like sometimes, you know, don't, don't ask someone to solve your problems because that's never going to, yeah, never going to happen. But if you do some research and then that's probably one of the best ways to get people to have coffee, right. Is to say, Hey, I've been reading about this thing that you seem to have experience in. I'm trying to figure out how to navigate this problem. Can I speak to you about it? And one of the best things about that type of approach is that the person receiving that message knows you've done some research. That's great. You haven't figured out everything, which means that actually there's room to kind of be helpful and everyone loves being helpful. Um, and that's also a really specific thing that people can help you with. So do research, but definitely, definitely ask, ask for chats. I think it's, um, it's, yeah, like I said, it's probably the best way to fast track your, your knowledge journey. Um, let's head to our speed round of questions. You you don't have to make them very detailed. You can just give brief Sure. So let's give it a go. All right. Where do you see the future of clean tech and renewable energy in the next five years? That is quo. I think it is going to be the majority uh, form of energy that we use in our homes and businesses. It will be the majority of energy on, on our grid. Um, I think this idea of having a debate around it will be almost um, laughable. I think it will just be the status quo. And I think we'll be figuring out how we use it as a export uh, commodity. That's amazing. Really keen to see that. So am I. What advice would you give to your younger self? Uh, Stop being so hungry. Um, No, I would say... Uh, what would I say? I would say trust, trust yourself, back yourself and be kinder to yourself. I spent way too much of my career being way too hard on myself because I thought that my career was going to fix everything. So I think remember that there are other parts of your life that aren't your career um, and make sure that you get some sense of balance in investing in those. But I think the reality is and something I've always believed in is that if you are true to yourself and you are and you act in that truth, that things have a way of figuring themselves out. And it's really hard to see that early on. And it's one of those really preachy things that people say and you kind of want to roll your eyes. I still do roll my eyes, but it's um it's always proven truth for me. That's actually so relatable. Um I I, I definitely relate to that. Um, I I definitely need to stop being so hard on myself and focus too much on um, my career um, and and create that balance. How do we influence our financial institutions and governments to adapt to clean tech and renewable energy across the board? I think that you should never underestimate the power of your purchase. Um, I think that um, at the end of the day, uh, if you think about it in a really linear way, um, who you choose to buy energy from, who you choose to bank with, who you choose to do your super with, um, what you choose to buy, what companies you choose to support, 
These are all signals and they send a signal to the market. They send a signal to the shareholders in a very, very, very basic way, simplifying this in a massive way. But the reality is, is that type of um, signal actually has a lot of weight. We underestimate it. And I want to put a huge emphasis on the fact that it's actually, I don't actually think it's necessarily like, you know, like our job as individuals to fix corporations behavior. But I think that we can choose to be really deliberate in how we spend our money and how we kind of, you know, the companies we support. And in doing that, I think it actually helps to change. You know, if it, if you think about it, you know, energy retailers who depend largely on, on or, you know, who kind of, who, who have coal plants and favor coal more so than renewables, you know, they need customers to do that, right? That's kind of at the end of the day what their business is. You know, and if you start thinking about a world in which the customers are reduced because they're no longer aligning with those companies, that has impact. So um, it may feel small, but never underestimate the power, like I said, of your purchase. Definitely. Um, we shouldn't be underestimating our power as consumers um, and contributors to the economy. Finally, uh, where can listeners go to learn more about you, EVP? Startmate and Arena. Well, I don't have a website, but all those other companies have websites. So um, I definitely suggest checking them out. Um, Arena has a, a number of newsletters that you should sign up to that are great ways of getting very concise um, insights into the, the coolest um, coolest shit that they're funding. And, you know, Startmate and EVP do as well. Uh, if you are a founder or you are a budding, you know, startup operator and you want to talk about investment, reach out to EVP. Um, but then I am always open to conversations. So you can find me on Twitter, on LinkedIn. I'm on a number of Slack groups. Please reach out and um, yeah, happy to chat and connect with anyone. Thank you so much, Kaya, for your time today here with us on the pod. Uh, we really appreciate your time and um, your effort to, to answer all these questions um, and all the best for your journey ahead. Thank you. Thanks for having me. What did you think of the chat with Kaya? I thought it was so encouraging. I'm also really looking forward to that future where we'll laugh at the concept of even considering not going renewable. How good that that's just going to be so awesome. If you'd like to connect with Kaya, have that, that cup of coffee, um, please find her on LinkedIn. All the links that she mentioned as well will be in the show notes. We'd also love to connect with you and hear your thoughts. So please join us on Facebook and LinkedIn to be part of our Greenfluence community. Please subscribe to our podcast and keep up to date with the latest episodes. And we'd appreciate it if you would rate us and leave a comment. It means a lot. Thank you for joining me for this episode. I hope you have a wonderful day and I'll catch you in the next one.